Let's pray. Father in heaven, you say that your worshipers will worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we confess we can't do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to awaken our souls, to open our eyes, to fill our hearts. We need you to give us the spiritual eyes to see the truth in your word. Father, help us to see you this morning. Help us to see the truth in your word this morning, the truth about your son Christ. Father, give us clean hearts and renew our spirit to embrace and worship your son Jesus. Father, as you do it for us, we pray that you will do it around the world. Father, we pray for those who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the Uzbeks this morning in Uzbekistan, over 22 million people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we first thank you for the work you've already been doing among the Uzbeks, the number of brothers and sisters that we already have. Thank you for adding to the family. Father, thank you for ever increasing your kingdom. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters that there will be unity among them, that you will strengthen them, that you will bring them into churches, that you will raise up men among them who will preach the word. Father, we pray that you'll change the hearts and the minds of the Uzbek Muslims, Father, who think that they're serving you, that they are going through the religious mantras and the religious rituals, Father, all for in vain. Father, we pray that you will save more of them, Father. We pray for a fruitful ministry that's going on among them, Father. Father, we pray for the ministry of Pastor Bobby Oliveri of Foundation Church in Fredericksburg. Father, we pray that their church will be strengthened also, that their ministry will be fruitful, and that you'll save more through that new church in Fredericksburg, Lord. Father, we also pray for Darren Carlson, President of Training Leaders International. Father, you know the work that they've been doing for these last eight years. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to bless them, that you will work through them. Father, we thank you for the expansion of the work that they've done in recent years and the training of more brothers of preaching your word rightly according to your word, the whole counsel of your word how they're learning to be shepherds among your people. Father, I pray for the new opportunities that is before TLI. I pray for more teachers and trainers to go. Father, I pray for that ministry that they will begin the ministry that they're looking at now, Father, in this country. Father, we have many people who have come to this country and who are in need of training. Father, may it be possible. May you be praised. May you be pleased to work through TLI in that way. Father, we pray for the other churches here in the county that the word preached this morning will not fall on deaf ears, but your people in the churches here in King George will see the truth, will hear the truth, will love the truth, and walk in your truth. Father, we pray that you will increase your kingdom here in the Dahlgren area. Lord, I pray that as we continue to pray and look for ways to begin the ABC ministry, that you will provide that way for us. 
Lord, that you will help us to see ways we can get into the community to tell them of all your glorious attributes, all the greatness that you are in that curriculum. Father, may you use that to reach the children and their parents. Father, I pray that you not only increase number here in Dahlgren, Father, but you will increase our desire for you. Father, I pray that you will help us to desire your word more than gold, more than earthly riches, more than anything else. Father, may we see your word as sweeter than honey and more satisfying than anything. Father, awaken our hearts. Help us to embrace your covenant love given to us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll be beginning in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like to give you one as a gift to you. Please raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Or if you forgot a Bible and you don't have one on your phone, we have Bibles in the back for you to use. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. It's page 957 in the church Bible. Please stand with me as I read God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we have an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, help us to see you in the text this morning and our desperate need for your son, Jesus. Amen. Last week, I said verses 15 to 23 is about the Christian life being a fulfilling and a sacrificial ministry to advance the gospel. 
as a follower of Jesus, your life is one of joyful service in the kingdom of the King. It proclaims God's abundant grace and His goodness as your life is transformed from a sinner into a saint. As you demonstrate and share that He satisfies every longing you have down to the deepest part within you. This life is eternal life promised. It's eternal life experienced. And it's eternal life demonstrated to others. It is a fulfilling ministry. But not only is it a fulfilling ministry, it is also a life that has sacrifice. It is a new life based first on Christ's sacrifice for you. And it's one that requires hard choices to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Christians make sacrifices in order to win more people to Christ. Paul went on in verse 22 to say, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The Christian life has a certain lifestyle to it. It has certain priorities and characteristics that stem from the grace that you've received. The grace that changes our hearts and what we worship. Before we worshiped ourselves or created things, now by God's grace, we worship the one true living God. This grace creates a new life that's now lived for the glory of God. Both in our lives and in the lives for other people. That's what the Christian life is. We know that. That's what other parts of Scripture say. Other parts of Scripture, if you were to turn to Philippians 1.21, says simply, for, me to live to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life is Christ. And in death, it gets even better. That's what it means to be a Christian. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. It's page 942 in the church Bible. Paul explains the, tra- the transformation that takes place for the believer. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." If you are a follower of Jesus, sin no longer reigns in you. You have been brought from death into life. And your new life is now being an instrument for righteousness. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God is not some mystical substance that he gives you. His grace is a person. It is God's own power to raise himself from the dead and give dead men life. In that life, that same power empowers his people to live for Christ. That grace-filled power is the very presence of God in the believer. So it's not just in passing, in our passage, when Paul says in chapter 9, verse 22, I have become all things to all people to save some, and it's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel. That's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. This is your life as a believer. Now, if Paul ended his letter there, you and I would be left hanging, wouldn't we? We would have lots of questions. It's like the climax of a great novel. We not only want to know that the main character wins, we want to know how they do it. For sure, learning what the Christian life really is then stirs up lots of questions for us. How do I do it? Why does God have me do this and go through these things? Well, what if I mess up? What would happen if I ignore this? And many, many other questions. And this is where this morning's passage comes in. God always... Hear me, please. God always does this. He not only tells us what to do, He tells us how to do it, and then He helps us accomplish what He tells us to do. Do you see that? God does that all along the way at every step. He not only tells you what you need to do, He then tells you how to do it, and then by His power and His grace, He then enables you to then do what He's telling you to do. At every step of the Christian life, it is God in His mercy and goodness who makes the Christian who they are and gives them what they need to do what He tells them to do. The Christian life, we know, has the goal to advance the gospel, to advance the gospel upwards in our life as our praise increases, as we learn more about God, our praise increases in our own life but also advance outward to expand the kingdom of God as instruments of righteousness 
So we advance the gospel in our life as we learn, as we're discipled, as we worship more, we understand more, we love him more. And then as instruments of righteousness, we advance the gospel outwards to others. It is hard and it is extremely satisfying at the same time. And in verses 9.24 through 10.13, this is where we see how. God gives us the motivation to accomplish what He's telling us to do. And He gives us a warning. This is the typical pattern in Scripture. We have the exhortation or the call, the command. It's given to us, followed by the motivation to do it. And a warning if we lose focus or if we ignore it. Isn't God good to us? If you understand that it's God at every step of the way, you're beginning to see how amazing and good and gracious He is. He not only has this high standard that you can never reach, He not only died in order to meet that standard, He doesn't leave you down there. He fills you with His presence, with His grace. He helps you to get up to that, to understand, and then to become this instrument of righteousness. God is good. Verses 9.24-10.13 through 10, 13 tell us this, that there is great reward, great reward for living the Christian life and serious effects if you don't. There's great reward for living the Christian life and serious effects if you don't. Brother and sister in Christ, your life in this world is one that is centered on Christ and His glory. You are a minister of the gospel. Not everyone preaches on Sunday morning, but all of us have been called into a royal priesthood. We're ministers of the gospel. That's the exhortation. The motivation is, no matter what you go through here in this life, there is a great, eternal, completely fulfilling reward for you. And to help you even more, you need to know that there are serious consequences if you lose sight of this. The warning is meant to encourage us further into the gospel, to continue along the path. Warnings are good for us. They keep us on that straight and narrow. And that's what this passage is this morning for us. Let's look at the passage. It can be broken down into two parts, and that's how we're going to look at it this morning. Verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 24 through 10.5 is the motivation for living your life as a Christ-centered, gospel-focused life. And then in chapter 10, 6 through 13, they give us a warning that keeps us focused on our lives as a ministry and the reward to come. What the Corinthians need to hear, what we all need to hear this morning, is that at the very essence of godly living is Jesus Christ. The Christian life is all about Christ. The Christian life is possible... It's only possible because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The Christian life continues because of the transforming power of Christ that keeps you centered on the cross of Christ 
And the Christian life has great reward because when we complete our ministry on this earth, we have Christ. It's all about Him. We receive such sweet pleasure of being with Jesus. It's what Paul called in verse 23, sharing in the blessings. Sharing in the blessings of being with Christ for all eternity. Now to understand the motivation for us to live this way, we need to understand the mental picture that Paul is giving the Corinthians. He describes for the church an athlete that is so focused and disciplined that they will receive a crown as the prize for winning. Now, sports was very popular in the Greek world. Remember that the city of Corinth is in Greece, and when the Romans took over, they continued the passion for athletics. The Greeks started the Olympic Games, you may know. And in Corinth, every two years, the Isthmian Games were held. The Isthmian Games were second only to the Olympic Games. Athletics was a big deal in the city of Corinth. So Paul's example would have resonated with the Corinthians of a runner who has trained daily, who has sacrificed their free time in order to get better, to improve their speed and their strength, and is committed more than any other to win the prize and receive the trophy, a victory wreath that they wear on their heads. The imagery made a lot of sense to the Corinthians. To win a race takes more than just showing up on race day, lining up, and starting the race. You don't win the 100-meter dash like that. Most of us have seen the Olympic races on TV. You can YouTube the best races. If you Google Olympic race, over 2 million hits pop up. Do you remember how a race is started? All the runners come out on the track, and they're introduced typically. Every single one of them is in great shape. They limber up. They loosen up. They have a rhythm that they go through before they put their feet in the starting blocks. And then they all get in this starter stance. And that's when you see this focus in their eyes. All of them are looking down at the finish line, completely focused on being the first one to win the race. No one lines up on the line expecting to lose. They all expect to be the first to cross that finish line. But only one will win. Only one will be crowned the victor. And that's what Paul wants us to see mentally. All these runners at the starting line focused on that finish line. The winner received a wreath made of leaves and they wore it on their head. But in time, that wreath would fade. It's only made of leaves and branches. The leaves would dry out, and the wreath would wither. What kind of crown do believers get? The Christian receives, Paul tells us, an imperishable wreath. It's a reward that never fades, never diminishes. And what we need to understand is not just one Christian wins. Every Christian is running this race. And every one of us is there. Not just one winner and the rest of us lose out. Every Christian is running. And every Christian must give their best. And every Christian will cross the finish line. This is what Paul says in verse 26 through 27. Why? He says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... 
I myself should be disqualified. Every Christian must give their best in order to cross the finish line. There's a purpose to the Christian's life. The purpose is getting to the finish line. The purpose is getting to King Jesus who's at the finish line. He's given us this new life. He trains us and then He empowers us to keep going in the race and then eventually cross. And He's that imperishable reward. Some parts of uh, Scripture talk about having a treasure. A treasure in heaven that will not and cannot be destroyed. Other parts talk about receiving an inheritance from the Lord. It speaks of great reward for living for Christ. Jesus tells us what the reward is in the clearest way in John's Gospel. Please turn with me to John chapter 14, verse 1. It's page 901 in the church Bible. This is Jesus' own words, and listen to what he says. As I read, see if you see what the reward is. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And look down at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The prize is Jesus. He will take you to himself and he will make his home with you. He is who you're running toward. If you're a Christian this morning, that imperishable wreath, that crown of victory, that reward that never fades is Christ himself. Our prize is being home with Jesus forever. And if we want to be even closer to our reality, our race is not the 100 meter dash, is it? It's more like hurdles in a marathon. There are obstacles in the way, and some days the race seems really long, like we will never get to the end. There are things in this life that can block us from finishing the race, and the finish line just seems so far away. If we're not careful, those hurdles in our life will make us tumble and fall. If you remember, a hurdler is someone who jumps over the hurdles If he doesn't learn and train to raise his legs above the hurdle, they can trip over them and stumble and not finish. There are some hurdlers who don't get their feet over and they just kick at it. They they keep going, but they kick at the hurdles, but they lose precious time. And the runners who've trained to get over the hurdles pass them by and they make it to the finish line. They win the race. These hurdles lead us to verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. After Paul gives us the picture of a runner winning, he gives an example from history. In the Exodus, the Israelites started off well. They left Egypt, they were following the pillar by day and the fire by night, but they did not finish well. The hurdles got in the way. They experienced redemption in Egypt during the Passover, 
Walking through the Red Sea was like a baptism for them. And God was always faithful to them, helping them in their time of need. When the Israelites were hungry, God gave them manna, bread from heaven to eat. Even when they were thirsty and they thought that they would die, God was faithful and he produced water from a rock. And Paul says this was Christ. Meaning that the existence as the people of God needing water to survive has a divine source. Both physically and spiritually, all of God's people need God to save them and keep them and provide for them and protect them. And we know that what happened in the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus Christ, who is the living water. That's how he's described in John's Gospel. The eternal wellspring who provides everlasting life and quenches every longing heart. The steadfast love of God is seen clearly and perfectly in Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He's the water. He's life. This is who God is. He never wavers from doing good for His people. He loves His people. He is a father to them and He calls us children. What's important to note here, not all of the Israelites ended up the same. They all began out of Egypt, but not all of them ended up the same. They constantly gave themselves over to idolatry. Many died in the wilderness, and not all made it to the promised land. Please look with me at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, saying most of them were overthrown is a huge understatement. Only two Israelites from the original generation made it into the promised land. That's Joshua and Caleb. Only two lived to enter the promised land. Paul is saying here, like the Israelites, the Corinthians have started out the same. But they need to focus on staying on the path that leads to the full presence of Christ. That path that sees Christ As your reward. The path that says his righteousness becomes your righteousness. That he accomplishes what you cannot. The path that sees him as glorious and better and more satisfying than anything else in this life. The path that submits to his authority and commits to living for his name. The path that sees your life as an instrument to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. A life of ministry and service for the king. The one who calls himself king of kings and lord of lords. That's the Christian race. See Jesus and run to Jesus. He is your great reward. Don't presume that knowing about Jesus is the same as running to Jesus. Only those who by God's grace focus on the prize and don't rely on their own strength or their own accomplishments and they look to Jesus and His preeminence, they look to His supreme worth, only they make it past the hurdles and cross the finish line. Let Jesus be your motivation and your provision for eternal life. 
It's Christ, the Passover lamb, who brings you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who sustains and keeps you in the wilderness and brings you into the promised land. He is the land flowing with milk and honey. He's the promised hope. He is heaven. He's the prize. In verses 6 through 13, Paul gives us the warning. He expands on verse 5 and shows the Corinthians what happens when people get complacent, when they lose sight of the goal. He explains in verse 6 that what happened to the Israelites really did happen in history. It happened as a result of their disobedience and their complacency. But they are also lessons for the Corinthians and for us to learn. It's like being the younger sibling and learning from the older one. In my family, I'm the younger brother. I learned a lot from my brother. I owe him a lot. When I was young, our father traveled a lot. He was away from home. It was my older brother that cared for me, that taught me many things. One of the things I learned from my older brother is that when he does something that he shouldn't do and got in trouble for it, I'm not going to do that. I learned from him in that. I'd say to myself, I don't want that to happen to me. I didn't need to do it to learn what happens. I learned from my older brother. That's what Paul is saying here. Learn from the Israelites. Don't desire evil. Don't be idolatrous. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Don't put Christ to the test. Don't grumble and complain. What happened in the Old Testament happened for your instruction. We are to learn from them. We are to learn to trust God and not ourselves. He is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. His love remains and is always part of who He is. Your future as a follower of Jesus Christ is secure because Christ has secured it. God has a purpose for the Israelites going through the wilderness and never measuring up and needing a Messiah. Is to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. To know that we can't measure up. No one can measure up to God. And it's to know of our deep, desperate need for Christ. He measures up for us. It's He who saves us. He fulfills God's law for us. He honors God. He defeats God's enemies and saves His people for the glory of God. Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. The Corinthians thought they were standing firm in the faith. Their hope was in what they knew and in what they did. They presumed, like the Israelites, that they had it all together. They don't need to worry about idolatry or sexual immorality or pride or arrogance. But that's exactly what their problem was. The Corinthians were dangerously close to following the Israelites' example. They were losing focus. They were getting sidetracked and too concerned about this life. Their attitude, like those of us who follow Jesus, should be a humble, submissive one to God. Knowing that our very existence is because of the grace of God and His kindness towards us. It's a posture of living that proclaims, I'm alive only because of Jesus for one purpose, and that's to share His good news to the world, to preach the gospel to myself and to share Him 
with others. The Israelites are proof that a divided heart is a cancerous heart. One that spreads disease throughout the whole body. It is a death sentence. Don't be self-confident and think that you have it all together. That you don't have to worry about sin or the hurdles in life. God has those hurdles in your life for one reason. For you to look to Jesus and receive His grace and show His goodness and His kindness. You show His supreme excellence and when you do that. Single-hearted devotion to Christ is the only proper response to a life that was drowning in sin and misery and is now resting safely in the arms of the Savior. Friend, if you have not recognized your sin, you are in misery even if it doesn't seem like it. Even if you have the good things in this world, the misery is not having eternal life. Only those who confess their sin and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved for eternal life. Only those who have the eyes on the prize will be at home with Jesus for all eternity. Consider what Paul is saying here. Take heed lest you fall. There's temptation everywhere in this world. No one can escape it. Every person faces temptation. The temptation to abandon God. To something else. Every single one of us will succumb to it if we face it on our own. But look with me in verse 13 what it says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And before I talk about what this verse means in the text... Let me mention what it does not mean. It's been misquoted and misused quite a bit. It does not mean that God will never give you more than you can handle. Nor does it mean you will never be tempted beyond what you can deal with. That's not what it means at all. We know that this is not true because of our very need for a Savior. We already have more than we can handle in this life. No one can live to God's holy standard. All of us are tempted beyond our own ability to withstand it. We need saving. So what is Paul then saying here? He's telling us that what we face in our lives, in this church, in this culture, that it's not new. Others have faced the same struggles we face. And God always has concern for his people. And he is active among his people. Because God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's always faithful, always loving, he provides his children with strength and deliverance. We are no different than the Israelites. We face the same temptations that the Corinthians faced. We are to be mindful of this. If we turn to God when we're tempted, then verse 13 says, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. The word used here is to find a way out of a difficult pass. It's like being in a mountain range and God giving you that path that leads you out of it. God always gives a shimmer of hope, the way out of temptation and to remain faithful to him. 
There is a way out of each situation and a way to advance the gospel in every circumstance. But how do we do this? How do we take heed? How do we live lives that are focused on Christ and devoted to spreading the gospel? How do we turn to Him and remain faithful? Well, we admit that we can't do it on our own. We turn to God, the only one who makes it possible, and we ask Him to keep us, to bring us to Him, to be at home with Him. We pray and we trust in His promises that He will do this. We look to the promise of future grace and we live in accordance with the Word. We follow Jesus no matter what. Because we know that by following Him, we are moving closer and closer day by day to being with Him for all eternity. And we thank Him for His faithfulness and power in our lives. Now, I didn't learn this on my own. There's an acronym that I've learned that helps me remember this. It's called APTAT. A-P-T-A-T. APTAT. Admit, pray, trust, act, and thank. I first heard about APTAT from the ministry of John Piper, and you can find an article about it on the Desiring God website. Here's how APTAT goes. You admit that you cannot do it alone. Whatever you're facing, good or bad, you cannot complete it on your own to the glory of God. You acknowledge that you need God to do it for you. You need Christ to shield you, protect you, and keep you. You then pray. You turn to God and you ask Him to do what you cannot do. You ask Him to do it in His strength and His power. You then trust Him to do what you're asking Him to do. You trust His promises. You remember and you trust a specific promise that He gives you in His Word. You trust His timing and His goodness, knowing that He has your best interest in mind. You act in obedience to the Word, and you thank Him for His goodness and continual work in your life and through your life. If you and I do this, we are glorifying God. Knowing that Christ fulfilled everything on our behalf, turning to Him when we need help is showing Him as glorious as it really is. That's running the race. He's helping us over the hurdles, and this happens Because God saves his people in Christ because of what Christ has accomplished. He enables us to live out the gospel, to advance the gospel. It's Christ who protects us from temptation. And he's faithful to bring us to himself and give us a reward of his never-ending love. That's the Christian race. There are hurdles in your life, but it's Christ who gets you over the hurdles and to the finish line, and you receive Him for all eternity. Let's pray.